This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers and this is the taylor stevens show with my good friend steve campbell where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time and taylor we have for for listeners who heard last week's show we didn't have any farm stories so what do we have this week <laughs> it's just not really farm stories but like um we had this freeze right and one of the problems when things freeze is so does the water and that means that before a freeze hits, I've got to go fill up all the water, make sure all the animals have all the water they're going to need, and then I have to cover up, unattach hoses, cover everything up so that nothing gets broken, burst, whatever. And then, of course, the, the water will freeze too, and then I'll just go out and break it, which is fine for animals that like to drink water and not so fine for animals who like to swim in water. And it was like, I don't know, 28, 29 degrees out, sleeting. And I look out the window, and the geese had made a puddle beside one of the vehicles, and they were bathing in it in freezing weather, just standing there fluffing themselves. And I posted a picture of it in the Facebook group, and I'm like, oh, yes, an ice bath. That is the perfect thing. And of course, that started a discussion in the Facebook group about how their feet not freeze. And I refused to follow the links because then that's it. Uh, so that's where I'll go. So I was like, did anyone have the answer to that? Now question? I know. Yeah, yeah, they did. And and it has to do with the way supposedly they abbreviated it. Um, so I didn't have to read it that the um, it has to do with the way their blood circulates. So that blood going into the feet is is mixed with warm blood and from the rest of the body, which is very warm. And then when it's coming out of the feet, it re, rejoins that warm blood stream so that you don't have freezing cold blood hit the heart. So even though um, their feet are cold, it's not like how we would experience cold feet. That is my takeaway understanding from reading a single paragraph summary of the links that I did not follow. <laughs> and then there's this, um, so Leo the cat, Sir Pounce de Leon, who I love. He is the, the perfect cat for me, but he's also no end of trouble. And he's gotten into this habit now. Well, he's figured out how to open doors. So now I have no safe places for plants inside the house before I could just keep them in rooms that he couldn't get into. And now also he discovered um, the strings that hang off of uh, window blinds, you know, that adjust them. They have these little plastic knobs on the end as weights. And my bed has the, the, um, front board, the headboard, it has these sort of pedestals on them. So he gets up there at god awful hours and he sits on the pedestal and bats at the the little weights and it's just like clink 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 clink. And so I've 
I tried everything. I tried moving them, like wrapping them around something so he couldn't get to them. And he figured out that if he pulled the string, he could still make the clunk noise because <laughs> it would still clunk on something. And and it was waking me up so much. And I'd be like, I'd grab him by the scruff and put him on the bed. And then 15 minutes later, we're doing the same thing. I'm like, I, I, I can't keep him out of the bedroom because he knows how to open doors. And I don't know how to keep him off this thing. And then I had an idea. And I'd seen these, you know, I'm sure you've seen them going around like on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. Everybody watches their videos nowadays where people would put tinfoil on counters and then the cats would jump on the, the counter and they'd see the tinfoil and they'd freak out and, and jump down. So I'm like, okay, cats don't like tinfoil, but it's different when it's a counter with lots of space and then it's just this small little pedestal at the, the height of the headboard. So I went and I, I wrapped it in tinfoil. Like he, if he, he's not going to jump up there and then see a little tinfoil and then be scared. It's that the whole thing is wrapped in tinfoil. And I was like, this is my cat repellent. Let's see how it works. So the first time he came running in, just charging into the room, jumped onto the bed and was about to leap and like caught himself midair and was like, whoa, that is not what I thought was going to be there. And you could almost see him like doing that slow motion, you know, backwards, backpedaling, you know. And then he just sits there and he looks at it. Took him about two days before he decided to uh, step on it. And then he was doing it very gingerly, like one foot, then the other foot, and then a third foot. And then maybe not, maybe I'll just back my way down. And then by the fifth day, he would go up there and he would sit on it, but he didn't want to move because it makes noise and it's crinkly under his feet. And gradually he just stopped having interest in going up there anymore. He still will sometimes, but he's very slow, very cautious because he doesn't know about this stuff under his feet. So now my bed has cat repellent on it. It's very ugly, but it's also very quiet. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, never heard that before. He is uh, entertaining, I guess we'll just say. Uh, he is a back massage 20 times in the middle of the night as he walks all over me to see if I'm awake yet. Just <laughs> <laughs> like... I don't know what to do, but I love him. And he's the perfect, you know, he's just so wants to be around me and cuddle me all the time. And, you know, he sits on me. I just, I need a cat like that. So he is what he is. And this is the one that you found or this is the one? Yes. That you got? Yes. Okay. This is no, right. this is the kitten that I found in, in the truck engine. And if we were really well organized, we could point you directly to the show where that story was. <laughs> But we're not that well organized. <laughs> we are not. No. <laughs> Speaking of organization, Taylor, um, I I thought it would be interesting to talk about what I first said was a story Bible, but really more of a series Bible. And Taylor said, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's talk about that. Can you explain what that is? And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you can teach me about them. So, I mean, first of all, it, it just goes to show how open Taylor is, is willing to talk about anything. And I could actually, I could probably explain for like a couple of minutes and then she could talk for 20 minutes about the need for them and the, and, and the way she does it and things like that. But, 
So we'll see. We'll see how this I really goes. Want to, yes. We'll see how this goes. We'll see how this um, goes. But as you know, from someone who has written a uh, a lengthy and growing series, uh, there are things that you need to remember from book to book to book. And the way to keep track of that for some people is an organized space or maybe a notebook or an Evernote file or a file in Scrivener or whatever, where they keep track of all of these details, things like eye color, hair color, um, accents for characters that only show up once in each book, things, things like that. And I'm curious as to whether or not you have anything like that for either of of your two series. Even though the second series is only two books, there's a lot of information that you need to remember from the second book that came from the first book. So did you keep anything like that, or do you just rely on your prodigious memory? Well, um, in the past, I've always just relied on my prodigious memory, but... My brain doesn't really function the way that it once did. So I don't know what's going to happen with that moving forward. But I think that, you know, I spend so much time in these worlds with these characters, thinking about them, and I don't spend a lot of time describing them. Mm-hmm. So things like hair color and eye color and all that, I don't. I, you know, there might come a time where I really need to do that, but I I haven't hit it yet. There are times when I want to reference something that's been said in another book, previous book, and that's where it gets a little bit challenging because the only way I have to do that is to search through older manuscripts older manuscripts, because generally I don't end up with a final manuscript. I will turn in the version that's my final, but then it goes through editing and copy editing. And those ones can be difficult to search for because of all the comments and just the way that they're formatted. So, and I don't always even get the end results of that because that's their property, not mine. So what I've always done then is, if it's a specific thing, like an actual quote where I want to get the dialogue correct or I want to make sure that I've got something timeline-related absolutely correct, I'll just start searching through the book that I'm pretty sure it was in for phrases that I believe surrounded the subject until I find it. And then knowing what chapter it is in, I'll actually go pull a hard copy and go read the hard copy to make sure that what what the final, the original was. But moments like that are are fairly rare. There have been a few instances where I have hit de- dead ends. I can't find the thing that I know exists because I can't remember the exact terminology. And what I do remember is pulling up so many results that it's worthless. I'm not going to spend three hours searching for this one sentence. And so in those cases, I'll just sort of skirt around them. But in terms of story Bibles, I always thought that they were the exact opposite, where somebody basically creates the master plan for a story that other authors then work off of or that the author then uses as a guidebook for either a series or, you know, that a very large 
story, like a, a sweeping epic or something that just has a lot of information in it. I feel like my books, even though they contain a lot, they are not, they don't contain a lot in that way. We usually have a minor cast of characters. Like there's not a bazillion people that are named that are important to remember. And there's not, they're not like 400 page books where, you know, you start in one century and you end in another. It just, <laughs> they're a lot easier to keep up with, I think. Mm-hmm. So when I think of a story Bible, I'm like, okay, this is the master plan. And I wish I had that type of storytelling ability where I could think everything through in advance and lay out a map of exactly how everything would go. But honestly, the idea of having to do that terrifies me a little. And I outline, I, I'm a heavy outliner, but having to go that deep into it, it scares me. But that's what I always thought it was. I didn't ever think of it in terms of an after the fact document that documenting what you've done along the way so that you have an easy reference point to go back to. And when I think of that, the only reason why I feel like it might not be useful to me is because the type of stuff you put in those, that type of documentation isn't stuff I regularly would pull on. And all the stuff that I would possibly pull on, I can't imagine until I'm writing the next story. So how do you know what's supposed to go into it? But if you have any tips or tricks, I'm all ears. Well, uh, first off, let's just to clarify we all use different terms for different things. So I like, I remember the first time you and I talked about um, what for me is a blurb, which is the Amazon sales description. And you said, Oh, that's a synopsis. And then I talked to other people who refer to a synopsis as a, as a kind of a lengthy document that explains what the story is to perhaps. Yeah. That can also be one. Yeah. So there are all kinds of, we use all these different words for things, but what I'm talking about is, is what I'm talking about. And I, I have, in talking to different editors, sometimes that's a part of the service that they offer, is that they will build the series Bible for you as they're going through, and they're building it for themselves, so they're not going back and referencing book two and looking through book two for something that's happening in book seven. And in, in the, in the okay, world so- of, Go ahead. Well, now that you mention it like that, there is one instance where you do, I I have seen a lot of that, and that is in copy editing. So when you get your copy edits back from a copy editor, at least the times that I've done it within traditional publishing, I, I don't know, maybe there's lots of different ways to do it, but they always come with this sort of extra document that outlines how each character's name is supposed to be spelled. What's the first page that they show up on the story and just little like locations and stuff. And it, it's, it's setting out the, I guess the guidelines for them. And also I guess you as an author. So you could almost take those copy edit uh, things and put them together and basically cre- create the essence of a, your version of the story Bible and it never crossed my mind until right now when we were talking about this, that that information is actually does exist in some place if you have the copy edit files filed and not as like pen and ink as it once was in the dark ages. I know that when, when, when we talk to new authors in the company that I'm involved with, 
we're, we very specifically tell them that our editors are not going to build the story Bible for you. That's or the series Bible. That's your responsibility to, to keep up with that. See, I couldn't ever even imagine having some, somebody having to say that to me, like, like that's a thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what? If somebody told me you're responsible for keeping up with this, I'd be like, okay. Like, yeah. I, I didn't even know that it was a thing that people had to do, you know? And I, I, I don't know whether that was, maybe that, maybe it comes from traditional publishing where copy editors were used to doing this document at the end and providing it to the author and, and that became a part of the the work product that evolved over the course of several books in a series. And, you know, we've all read, if if you read a lot, you read series where the authors just, it, as a reader, you remember these bizarre things that the authors will never remember in a thousand years. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, in, in book two, uh, the apartment only had three bedrooms and now it has five. How did that happen? And it happens because the author can't remember that stuff and they're writing the story so that you'll be entertained. Yeah, but, but that's, that surprises me because if I ran into an instance like that that I was going to reference a previous apartment, I would go back and check, just like I check everything else. I'm, I'm not saying that I don't have any flubs or, or slip-ups in, in my stuff. You know, I'm sure it exists too. But I'm just surprised that it, doesn't somebody double-check? Like, don't, don't you double-check your own work? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a fair question, but I've seen a lot. Not a lot. I've seen several traditional big time series that have those things in them. And it's as readers like will joke about them in on Facebook and things like that. Um, so it's it's interesting. But if if you were if you were planning out, let's say, a, a let's say you got a contract to do six books and which is which would be highly unusual because most contracts aren't for for that many books. But let's say you got a contract for terrifying. six books. Would yeah. you would you make the effort to come up with some kind of organized structure to keep all of this so that you didn't have to keep looking back if you're only writing one book a year or would you See, attempt a... to rely on your prodigious memory? That's such a complicated question because when you have six books, that let's make it easier. Let's say three. <laughs> when you have three Chicken. books, then then you're faced with the question of like, is this a trilogy where each book stands, where the story runs through, and if you miss the middle one, you don't know what's happening in the third one type thing, or are these three? basically standalone books with continuing characters. So I would say my books, for example, are standalone books with continuing characters. So the, each book is plot contained, but subsequent books will draw on what happened in previous books and make reference to them. Sometimes characters from previous books will show up again. And in the current one, you always have to provide just enough information of who that character is and how they their past comes into the present but not so much that you're basically retelling the book that it came from. So, but, but that's like, you didn't know that was going to happen until you're writing the book that you're in now. So you wouldn't have thought, well, I need to include X, Y, Z. But if you know from the beginning that you've got all this writing space to tell your stories 
then you know that you have a much greater chance to think through everything that happens so that you are calling back to previous things and threads that start in one might feel like they're tied up, but then can continue over into the next. And that can create a much richer uh, story world tapestry. In a case like that, I think what I would do would be sit down and figure out, first of all, which each which stories each book would contain. Like this one's going to be about X, this one's going to be about Y, and this one's going to be about Z. And sort of get a generalized plot storyline. And then knowing what that is, I'd start pulling on, well, what characters are going to show up? Well, we know, obviously, if we were writing a Monroe story, it would be Monroe, right? So in that sense, that's a given. But then what other characters, side characters, are going to show up in this? And I would start looking for ways to pull from previous books, specifically because I personally believe that readers find a lot more enjoyment in a story when there are things that they recognize from other stories, especially when it comes to characters. They're really happy to see characters that they've enjoyed before show up on the page again in different light or under different circumstances. So I would be looking for ways to do that. And knowing that 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 would be my goal, then I would seriously do things like, okay, character biographies, maybe not so much, you know, focusing on their height or their weight or their, you know, whatever, but who they are at their core, what's driving them so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel for characterization or remember what made that character tick. So I'll use an example, right? In The Doll, we introduced a character called Samantha, who's basically Miles Bradford's one of Miles Bradford's right-hand people. She's she's the one that he would trust to do specific things because she's very good at what she does. She's not Monroe. She's different. And but she's a very enjoyable character because she's just no nonsense, but also really good at manipulating men because she's very voluptuous and she uses that to her advantage. So she and Miles Bradford are close. But Monroe and Miles Bradford are what they are. And in the time apart that they're apart, it's made evident that Sam and Bradford sort of became a thing. So when Sam enters the story, and again, in The Mask, which is book five, there's some tension there between the two women. And But they're both professionals as well. That's the type of thing that when writing those scenes, it's really helpful to make sure you understand who each of these characters are completely in and of themselves. That's the type of thing where if I couldn't remember it myself, I would have had to have gone back and reread the doll to make sure I really understood Samantha's character. So for that, having these characters, who they are at their core built out in a master document. I'm not going to call a story Bible, but I'll just call it a master character document. That would, I could see come in handy, especially if I was much more prolific and didn't have time to just constantly be really thinking about stuff. And I just needed good reference material to draw on for character consistency. That would have, would come in really handy. So if I knew I was writing a series, three, four, five books that I had a contract lined up for, Then as I began writing, I don't think I would have 
the ability to write it out ahead of time. But as I began writing and developing characters that I expected to show up again, I would transfer that information, my insights about them, moments, key moments, key things that they had said, how they feel about other characters. I would transfer that into that master document and give each one of those characters their their space to do it. That's how I could see something like that benefiting me. And that is what I was hoping for in the beginning when I said, I'm going to get Taylor (laughs) rolling. (laughs) She's going to go for 20 minutes. (laughs) Steve, you know how to push my buttons and wind me up and make me go. (laughs) It It wasn't 20 minutes, but it was really good. All right. So I, what I would like to hear, because we have some, some, some authors in, in the Taylor Stevens fan club group who, who have fairly lengthy series going, I would like to, to hear from them, if they don't mind leaving the information in the, in the fan club group, what they do to keep track of this information, what they call it, and, um, yeah. and how they do it. So if we, that, get we, more than, from if we can get more than one person t- to respond, then we could actually... <laughs> Give, give, uh, you know, ideas from others. It's going to feel really lame if only one person responds and they'll be the whole show. But yeah, I really would love to hear from other authors in how you approach this stuff. Uh, you don't have to be a traditionally published author. You don't even have to have a tremendous number of sales as an indie author. We're all sort of just making our way through this, figuring it out the best that we know how. And you might have, you might not be well known or have a lot of books, but you might have some really great ideas. And I would love to hear them. So if we could just get more than one person to contribute, we could actually share the wealth of knowledge. And that would be really, really fun. All right. And with that, we will close out this show. Thank you guys very much for being here. Uh, we look forward to being with you again next week. See you next week, guys. <laughs>